Um, I guarantee something we all did in one way or another this morning, unless you're a teenage boy, is look in a mirror. (laughs) Sorry, bud. Um, Whether you did it in a glancing way or you actually took time to like look and make sure, like I don't have to worry about what my hair is doing. Um, but but you look you look in the mirror and you, you're getting a glimpse of maybe some things that need to be changed or combed or brushed or any of those kinds of things. Uh, the mirror has the ability to assess ourselves and, and help us to understand maybe any possible changes that we need to make to present ourselves to those around us. Now this morning we're going to look at a mirror per se in the scriptures. We're going to take a good long look into the Word of God and prayerfully consider what needs to change in our lives. Not so that we can present ourselves to each other, but more importantly, to present ourselves to God. And the Word of God, and the book of James, uh, in James chapter 1, tells us that the Word of God is often like a mirror. It's a mirror for our hearts that reveals where we are. And here we are in Romans chapter 12, looking at a mirror of what God wants us to see. This morning begins, as I introduced last week, a a fitting uh, portion of Scripture of what we need to do in the Christian life as a result of what we know to be true about Jesus in our salvation. Last week, we talked about this great doxology that that culminated in Romans 11 as Paul was singing God's praises for um, His amazing grace in our salvation. And as a result of that doxology, that, that song of praise that Paul offers, we now have the opportunity to respond. Don't worry, those are water pipes. There's nothing else going on, so just power through that. Um, but as we're going to say in the next, over the next four chapters, in different ways, we're going to be confronted with what we do in the Christian life as a result of what we know to be true because of Jesus. So, so that, that sound effect was not planned for the service. Um, Here's the thing, though, when, now as we're in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15, we're talking about application, practical living. We're talking about the change that is to take place as a result of what we know to be true in Jesus. And here is what I know about application. Change is hard. Sometimes when you look in the mirror and it's revealed what needs to change, we walk away and say, yeah, I know it needs to change, but I'm not ready for that change. And here's the reality. We're going to come across some things this morning and as we move forward that I'm sure are going to hurt you. But that's okay. Because God is not satisfied to leave you where you are. He is in the process of making you more like His Son. And it's going to hurt sometimes. God's going to stretch us. He's going to push us in a direction. He's going to move us in a way that we never thought was possible. He's going to break us out of our comfort zones. I love my comfort zone because I feel like I'm in control when I'm in my comfort zone. 
And then God nudges me out of that little bubble and I think, oh God, I have no control. And he's like, you never did. (laughs) You know, so it's these moments and times that God's going to challenge us and move us. As we look at this uh, passage in Romans 12, um, I I came across uh, an amazing statistic, I guess. Um, We have been confronted with some of the deepest doctrine that is found in all of Scripture in Romans 1 through 11. There was a pastor, and I've referenced him before in in messages, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 297 sermons in Romans chapters 1 through 11. 297 sermons mining through the, the depths of the doctrine of what Paul is teaching here. Now, I know some of you don't believe this, but I've preached far fewer. Um, we started our study in the book of Romans in June of last year. And, and so, you know, we've been walking through this text of what it means to know that we are saved and how God has saved us. And now we're going to see, as a result of all that we know, how do we live? What does God expect? What does He want from us? Paul has been laying out what is the truth, what Christ has done, what the significance is of who we are in Christ, how we are saved, and now the question that resonates in our hearts is how then shall we live? That was the question that was posed by Francis Schaeffer, a great theologian. How then shall we live? Now, the beautiful thing here as we look at it is that Christianity is not merely a way of thinking. And it's not merely just a way of living. It would be easy to say in Romans 1 through 11, this is how you think. This is how you know. But Christianity isn't just based on what we know. And and then you might think in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15, well, this is what we do. But Christianity isn't just what we do. Christianity is both. It's a pattern that Paul sets for us. That we understand where we come from. And we understand what we need to do as a result of where we have come from. Christianity is not some kind of ethical system. Which isn't connected or rooted in anything. And this is what I love about where we're headed. Where we are headed is rooted in the sound truth that does not change, that we are able to change because of Jesus Christ. And if we didn't know all of those things for 11 chapters of the faithfulness of the mercy of God in saving us from dead sinners to being made righteous in God's sight, we would approach this application in this text and think, well, how is that possible? What can I do? What happens if? And and the questions will go on and on. But because we know where we came from, And the steadfast love of God that He has made us right and that the wrath of God is no longer poured out on us and that we are justified and made right in the holiness of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We then look at these words that are in front of us and say, yep, I'm heading in a great direction. And I know because the Word of God says in passages like Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a helper 
to empower us to live that way. That I don't do this on my own. That I don't need to be a better Christian by myself. That God has given me everything that I need. Last week, we talked about the importance of the doxology of Romans 11. And I shared with you that theology is the foundation of doxology. But theology not only is the foundation of doxology, it is also the true source of godly living in a fallen world. We need God's truth. God's truth needs to be planted firmly in our hearts if we are going to transform into the image of His Son. And so this text, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is a springboard. I, I, I've never done like a head-first dive into a pool. I'm like completely afraid of that. But some of you have. I've watched you do it, and I think you're crazy. But anyways, you've done it. And, and this is where I think we are, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2 is we're at the edge of the springboard, ready to dive right in to where God is going to lead us. Where he's going to move us and shape us and challenge us and stretch us. In two short verses, the Apostle Paul challenges us to consider the true response of the child of God to the gospel of Jesus Christ and ultimately what is required. What is required if we are going to live a life pleasing to him? You might say, well, requirement seems like duty. It seems like a work. It seems like something that we need to perform in God's eyes. Well, here's what you need to know. God saved you so that you can enjoy him forever. And to be a part of his family, he does require us to walk a certain way. He does. He is calling us from a state of sin and rebellion into the place of joy and relationship with Him. And that means we, we have to look different. That means something needs to change. Now here's a bit of a spoiler alert for what's going on in this passage. If you're trying to figure out how much God requires of you to live a life pleasing to Him, all of it. If you're trying to figure out when, all the time. If you're trying to figure out at this point, what does God require or where does God require me to live for Him? Wherever you are. All of you, all the time, wherever you are, God wants you to be ready to be changed by Him. And we're introduced to this in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Let me read this for you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There is so much here. And it's amazing. And it begins with this word, therefore. You might want to highlight this word, therefore, in your Bibles. And if you're, if you're a picture drawer, put an arrow. And if you can draw like a door hinge. Or maybe just write the word hinge. This word, therefore, is the hinge of, of the book of Romans. 
This word sets up everything that we're going to read from this point forward in Romans. Because it's in this word that theology for 11 chapters becomes practice. Everything that we know to be true is now calling us to respond. The charge that Paul gives in Romans 12.1 rises out of humankind's universal condemnation. Every human being, as Romans 3 indicated, has fallen short of the glory of God. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they have been justified, as Romans 5.1 indicated. And as Romans 8.1 declares, every person that knows Jesus Christ has no condemnation before a holy God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of all of this, it is only reasonable. Therefore, in light of everything that we know to this point, Paul is saying it is only reasonable that we present ourselves to God as a sacrifice. And what Paul says is, he says, Therefore, I urge you, Now, just a note on this phrase, I urge you. As Paul is moving us from instruction of doctrine to exhortation of daily living, he does so with an appeal. He does so with a pastor's heart. He does so with a loving command. He urges. And this word urging carries with it the idea of imploring, exhorting, calling us to consider in light of everything that we know to be true, And Paul does this some 50 times in the letters that he writes to other churches in the New Testament. He doesn't just come across as one of those autocratic people that says, you must do this because of what is true. You must listen to me. You must fall in line. You must follow all the rules. No, as a pastor, he's come alongside these people and he's saying, in the love of Christ, as a person that cares for your soul, as a person that wants you to be conformed to the image of Christ, I urge you to listen and follow my counsel. One commentator noted that this phrase, I urge you, one commentator noted that this is one of the most tenderest expressions in all of the Bible. Paul is not commanding the church in Rome To simply comply. He is calling us to respond in light of the mercies of God. Think about that for a second. God wants to change you. He wants you to be changed. And you play a huge role in that. God can't change you if you're not willing to present yourself as an offering. He can't. And so for us to be changed, it takes us to lay ourselves down on the altar before God. And as we consider the the challenge of that, as we consider what dedication is behind that, what commitment and all of those things, and we know that change hurts and everything that goes with it, why would we go through such a change? Why would we even consider radically being different because of the mercies of God? Notice that Paul didn't say, I urge you by the mercy of God. He says, I urge you by the mercies. Like more than one. What are those mercies? Everything that he has said in Romans chapter 1 through 11. 
Like when you think about your salvation, when you think about everything that God has done in rescuing you who was once dead to be made alive, and you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, there was nothing that you could do to, to make God want to do it. And Jesus entered into the world to take your place on the cross and to bear the wrath of God that was directed towards you. And that by His death and the blood that He shed paid for your sins so that you could be made right with the God that made you. And that as you are made right, God doesn't just wait until heaven to finish it, but that He wants you to enjoy Him now. And He gives you life and purpose now. And His Spirit is poured into you now. And you are called to live in a godly way now as justified people. That certainly is the mercies of God. And so why would we lay ourselves down on the, offer, uh, on the altar before God? Because God has shown great mercy to us. The endless mercies, the great is thy faithfulness kind of mercies that we sing. Right? In Lamentations chapter 3, we have a passage of the prophet Jeremiah writing over, he's lamenting, he's crying over the destruction of Jerusalem. And in Romans chapter 3, as he is considering the destruction of this city that was set apart for God. That's the place where God lived in the Old Testament with His people, Israel. And as He is watching Israel being, or Jerusalem being raised to the ground, and His heart is lamenting over the destruction, and as His heart is lamenting over God's people being um, set, set away from God because of their disobedience, He's crying out to God, but in the midst of that cry, he considers the mercies of God. And in Lamentations 3, he says, Great is your faithfulness, God. Your mercies are new every morning. And we sing that song. Great is thy faithfulness. Listen. Theology confirms to us the mercies we have received from God the Father through Jesus Christ. In light of that, what do we do? We live. This appeal to live is as strong as possible without commanding. How do we live? What is the response to the mercies of God? To present our bodies. You see that? By the mercies of God to present your bodies. Now, I, I've read this verse hundreds of times. You know what jumped out to me this week? And I found it odd. God, who is immaterial, who is spirit, wants our bodies, which are material physical. And it's like, why? Because when you read the scriptures, the question that I asked myself is, what does this body of mine have to do with worship? Jesus said in John 4.24, God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and in truth. What does this have to do with worship? 
I mean, some people are proud of their bodies. Not me. But some people are, you know, they stand in front of the mirror and they flex and do all those things and work really hard and all that kind of stuff. Good for you if that's you. But really, we're not looking at the mirror often and thinking, wow, he broke the mold when he made me. (laughs) I mean, honestly, when I look in the mirror, I think, why would God want this? But the scriptures say he does present your bodies. Now, the scriptures say some positive and negative things about the body. It's ambivalent, right? The scripture doesn't say that the body is terrible all the time, and it doesn't say that it's good all the time. Our bodies were originally created in the image of God, holy and blameless, but they were corrupted by the fall. Our bodies are often programmed by the habits habits of sin, And yet, we read in the scriptures, they are temples of the Holy Spirit. In the sense of what Paul is calling us to, I believe in this calling to present our bodies to God is focused on the fact because our bodies are really the only vehicle that we have to serve Christ in a physical world. This is all we got. Now, it's not going to last forever, and praise God there's a new body coming. But for now, this is all we have. And so we present our bodies to God because it is this shell, this earth suit, this tent that is all we have to show Christ to a lost world. Now, the Old Testament paints the picture that the word body refers to the whole person. The whole person. Every area of our lives needs to be presented to God. We read earlier in Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, that we are already called to present ourselves as members to God, not presenting our members of our body to sin. We're called to present it to God. Now, this word present in the Greek, I'll teach you a couple Greek words this morning. This word present in, in the Greek is the word peristomai. But what does that mean? Well, it, it, it's pretty amazing what, what all, all is here this morning. If you can, put, put something in, in Romans 12, and, and then go back with me in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. Now, Let me give you a bit of context uh, before I read the verses. We are now in the last night of Jesus' life. And the night before he is uh, hung on the cross, crucified as our Savior, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father. And he asked his disciples to watch and pray. And after Jesus is finished praying... Judas, the disciple that betrayed him, comes with a bunch of Jewish leaders and Roman guards to arrest Jesus. And we read this in Matthew 26, 
Let me start in verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, hail rabbi and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? So they're in the garden, the antagonists come, one of the disciples, which we know is Peter, takes a sword and lops off the ear of one of the slaves of one of the people that is gathered, right? He, he's trying to defend Jesus. Wouldn't you want to defend Jesus? I know I would. And I would think it needs done by human effort or energy. But Jesus says, no, put away the sword. And he says, listen, He's talking to his disciples, the guys that have walked with him for three years. He says, listen, it's fine. This is all part of God's sovereign plan. Don't you know, guys, that all I need to do is ask my father. And in a moment's notice, there will be legions of angels at my disposal. Now, if you have angels fighting your battles, you're pretty good you're, you're pretty well off. Now, why are we looking at this passage? Because in verse 53, when Jesus says, at my disposal, that word disposal is the same word that is used in Romans 12 for present. It's the same word in the Greek language. Now, what does that tell me? To present ourselves to God means that we always need to be ready at a moment's notice. Like, he wants all of us. When Jesus said that there are legions of angels at my disposal, if Jesus needed to call on those angels, there would not be any angels sitting back in heaven going, you know, I'm kind of busy. I have this side project over here going on. Or I have plans and my calendar is saying, hey, not today, but maybe next week. They're ready. And the question is, when you consider about presenting yourself to God, are you ready? Are you laying down on the altar with the attitude that God has all of you because if He wants you to do something, you're ready to go? Or are you saying, no, got some things I need to work out first. Listen, Romans 12.1, coupled with Matthew 26, encourages us, reminds us, calls us that when we present our bodies to God, we do so with readiness and no questions asked. When Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a holy, living 
sacrifice, which is pleasing to God. There is nowhere in the text where Paul is inferring, if you want to, if it's comfortable, or if you can get any gain out of it. It's just, this is what we do because this is who we are as a result of what we know to be true. We are acknowledging that our lives are able to be used by God as an offering with the attitude of no questions asked. For us, it may mean that we begin every day with this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I am yours. I belong to you. I am under obligation to you. I am yours. Think about your life if you begin every day with that simple prayer. Every day, I am yours. Now, Paul highlights three aspects to this sacrifice in Romans 12.1. First, it's living. Now, that might seem strange to us because once you sacrifice something that's living, it's no longer living. I mean, once offered, the sacrifice is dead. But a living sacrifice means that you are to go on the rest of your life constantly giving yourself over to death so that you can live with God every moment. A living sacrifice is much more costly than a dead sacrifice. And every day, we are called to give a living one. Second, it's holy, meaning we're set apart from the world. God is holy. Be holy as He is holy. And we completely belong to God. This means that there is a certain sense of sacredness to this sacrifice. That when God wants us and we lay ourselves down on the altar, we don't do so grabbing everything else that we can with the world to make it more comfortable. But we do so with the attitude that God is holy and He can have all of us because He has provided the opportunity and we set ourselves apart to Him as holy people, righteous people, belonging to Him. And thirdly, it's, it's what's acceptable to God. Now the focus is that our goal is to please God. We surrender, we offer, we present ourselves to God so that He is honored and glorified. We give Him the best of who we are because He certainly gave us the best. It's what's pleasing to Him. And Paul says at the end of verse 1, this is your spiritual service of worship. Now, as we present ourselves to God, not just in the songs that we sing, not just in the time that we give serving a ministry, not just the money that we give to God, but as we surrender our lives to God, Paul says that is the spiritual service of worship. Now that word, spiritual, in the Greek, here's another Greek word, is the word logikon. It's where we get the English word logical. Do you see it? What Paul is saying? In light of the mercies of God, everything that Jesus has done for us on the cross, the only logical response that we have is to give everything everything back to him. That is the spiritual service 
of worship. So what does that mean? It means that everything you do in your life is an opportunity to worship God. Everything. Everything. Let me say it one more time. Everything. Say it with me. Everything. What does that mean? Even the mundane things like vacuuming the carpets, cleaning the windows, doing dishes. My favorite thing in the world is doing dishes. (laughs) Thankfully, I have two kids now that are old enough to do dishes. I love you. I appreciate what you do for us. Right? But it's all worship. Romans 12.1 indicates and reaffirms that there is no difference between the sacred and the secular. Everything is sacred in God's eyes. How you pay your bills. What you spend your money on. What your dreams are. What are your goals. How you live. What you talk about. What you listen to. What you spend time focusing on. Who you have a relationship with. Why you have a relationship with those people. What you want to do with your life beyond school and college and and retirement and all those things. Every part of you, all that you are, is an act of worship to God. And it is the only logical response we have based on the mercies of God. And then we move to verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In verse 1, Paul describes the what of the Christian life. In verse 2, he says, or explains the how of the Christian life. Or said in another way, verse 1 is the commitment. And verse 2 is the maintaining of the commitment. Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed. This word conformed means to be put in a mold. The New Living Translation highlights the meaning when it translates verse 2 this way. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. The verbs in verse 2 are in the present tense. It's an ongoing responsibility. It's a never-ending responsibility of the believer to not be conformed to the world. Now listen, everything this world offers you is trying to press you into its mold. Everything. You better believe that Satan, who is the God of this world, is doing everything that he can to try to press you into the mold. How you spend your time, what you spend it doing. Oh gosh, heaven help me for saying this. The news that you watch, both sides of it, they're trying to press you into a mold. They're trying to defeat you in the battlefield of your mind. They're trying to discourage you. They're trying to make you angry. They're trying to rise you up in all this hostility. I mean, really. I, I was telling Angela this. I, I joined a Facebook group for, I, I bought an e-bike a few months ago. And I joined a Facebook group about other people that have e-bikes. There was 120 comments fighting back and forth over what the welds looked like on the bike. <laughs> the world is all about drama 
and antagonizing all the frustrations and I'm better than you and you're terrible and all these things because we simply disagree. The world is trying to push you into the mold. And God says, do not be conformed. Listen, if you're trying to fit into the world, don't. Don't. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. The word transformed is the Greek word metamorphos. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis. Right? The change, step by step, of being changed from one thing to another. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. And so I, I like seeing things, and I, I want to share this illustration with you. Maybe you'll get the, the picture of it. The scriptures tell us not to be conformed. So, tube of toothpaste, right? Imagine you're the tube of toothpaste. When you were born, this is all you got inside of you. This is going to bother some of you because you're rollers and not squeezers. But every time that you are conformed and you are squeezed and pressed into a mold, something comes out of you, right? Right? Absolutely right. Here's what happens when you're conformed. This is all you got left. This is it. You can't put the toothpaste back in. When you're conformed by the world and you're pressed in from every side and you're giving in to what the world says is true to make you popular or to make you important or to follow the prestige and all those things, and it's pressing in on you from every side, this is all you get left. And you know what it is? It's emptiness. Do not be conformed. But the scriptures say, be transformed. So the do not be conformed seems to be the outside pressing in, right? But the be transformed seems to be what's happening on the inside working its way out. So this is just a simple balloon, right? And right now, it looks pretty flat. Be transformed. And when you're transformed from the inside out, what seemed to have no value, what seemed to have no purpose, what seemed to be empty and void is what? Certainly filled. Now, I thought I'd pop this out and you guys can bounce it back and forth. I'm not going to do that because I'm, I'm not done yet. The process is through the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Presenting yourself to God means that we are constantly having our minds reprogrammed from the things of this world to the things of God. And how do we know the things of God? Oh gosh, it's so simple. It's all right here. It's all right here for us. And so as we are transformed through the renewing of our mind, that must mean that our lives need to rest in the truth of God's word. I can't stress to you enough that you need to be careful of what inputs are coming into your life. What you consume in media, in relationships, what, belie- what you believe helps you to determine your worth. If it's from the world, it'll squeeze every part of you. 
and it'll leave you empty. Listen, if all you do is watch the news, you're going to be an angry person. Guarantee it. There's a reason why when the Steelers lose, I don't watch sports for like 72 hours. I don't want to hear how terrible they played because why? It makes me angry. If you're not careful with what you watch, listen, read, follow, it will change you. The war of your heart, it should be is, not if, is fought in the battlefield of your mind. The war of your heart is fought in the battlefield of your mind. What you allow to enter you will affect you. My kids often ask us why they can't have or do certain things. And what do we say to them? Because you're different. That's why you can't have those certain things. Parents, it is never too late to put a hedge around the mind of your child's heart. Our response is always that we're different because of Jesus. If you feel that your child or teenager can handle something, teach them through it. Shepherd their heart. But don't ever just blindly hand them over to something because, oh, their other friends have it or do it, and it's okay. I'm being completely serious with you. We are raising a generation of people. We talk about all the time how young people are leaving the church more and more. We need to be careful. We do this so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We renew our mind through the word of God being transformed from the inside out, not from the outside in. And what's the benefit? We prove what the will of God is. We prove. The word prove carries the idea with it of testing. God's will is revealed to those who constantly present themselves to God and are transformed through the renewing of their mind. Now, here's the thing. We often want to know what God's will is, right? Isn't that the great mysterious question of life? God, what is your will in this situation? You want to know what God's will is for your life? Lay on the altar as a result of the mercies of God and renew your mind through his word and you will know what the will of God is for your life. It's that simple. It's not hard. It's not some kind of mysterious scientific equation that we did this and said these things and looked here and listened to that. No, read the word of God as you submit yourself to God and you will know the will of God. It's really not that hard. And this process that Paul is laying out for us produces discernment that helps us to bring in focus what God's will truly is. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is extremely important for the Christian. These verses express our most important responsibility to God. Dedication to God is a response to the mercy that we receive in salvation. And so my charge to you as we close is very simple. Who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the world? Or the word. 
If you listen to the world, it will squeeze everything out of you and you'll be left empty. If you follow God's word and listen to his word, he will transform you from the inside out, renewing your mind so that you will know his plan for your life. And it is certainly a good one. The battleground is in your mind. Church, it's time we thrive. Are you tired of feeling squeezed out? It's, ti- it's time we thrive. Don't settle for anything less. Commit yourself to God and watch how he leads in your life to bring blessing after blessing. Let's pray.